Hello again. This is podcast and it concerns the mouth and the oropharynx. Let's start by looking at the mouth itself. The mouth extends from the lips back to the palatoglossal fold, which is sometimes called the anterior pillar of the fauces. It includes the vestibule, which is between the teeth and gums and the cheek. We normally regard that as being emptied by the muscle buccinator, perhaps assisted by the tongue. The roof of the mouth is the hard palate, and the floor is the tongue. The mouth itself functions for eating, for talking, and of course it's an extra passageway for the airway. Its sensations include normal touch and temperature, but also include taste, the tongue and the lips being particularly sensitive. The mucous membrane is stratified squamous, and the nerve supply arises primarily from the mandibular branch of trigeminal and the maxillary branch. Into the mouth empties the salivary glands in the form of the parotid, the submandibular and sublingual. If we now look specifically at the hard palate, we can see that there is a mucoperiosteum, which is both mucosa and periosteum, very firmly adherent to the inferior surface of the palatine process of the maxilla and of the palatine bones themselves. From the posterior edge of the hard palate extends the soft palate, with the tensor palati into the edge of it, laterally, and the levator palati coming down to the superior surface and being able to lift it up. Towards the posterior edge, there are the, both the greater and the lesser palatine foramina, through which come the same named nerves from the pterygopalatine fossa. These two particular nerves have a, a fair number of fibres within them, as they carry not only a general sensation, but also taste, a little bit of sympathetic, parasympathetic, from the pterygopalatine ganglion, for secretomotor to the mucous cells, and general sensation from the maxillary division of the trigeminal nerve. These same nerves extend into the soft palate as well, and the soft palate itself consists of an aponeurosis, it has the tensor palati into its side, it has the levator palati acting on its superior surface, and from the edge arise both the palatoglossus and the palatopharyngeus. There are a number of small muscles which work the uvula, and it is covered with mucosa, which has both mucus and serous glands within it. In addition, there are a few taste buds also in the soft palate. Now, on each side of the tongue, there are the sublingual glands. These are mucus-producing glands that lie between the mylohyoid and the genioglossus. Each has about 15 ducts. Some open separately, and others secrete into the submandibular duct. The secretomotor fibres for these glands arise in the corda tympani and are carried there by the lingual nerve, which of course also produces general sensation to that part of the mouth. The arterial supply, again, is the lingual artery and branches of the submental artery. We need also to mention the submandibular gland at this time because its duct drains into the mouth. 
This salivary gland is both mixed, mucus and serous. It has a large superficial part and a much smaller deep part, and they join behind the posterior edge of the mylohyoid. Its duct is about 5 centimetres long. At first it's between the mylohyoid and the hyoglossus, and then it lies subsequently between the sublingual gland and the geniohyoid. It opens into the floor of the mouth alongside the frenulum. In total it produces some 70% of all the saliva. As with the sublingual gland, it has its secretomotor supply from the corda tympani carried by the lingual nerve. The parotid gland has rather more complex relationships, but essentially it wraps round the posterior edge of the ramus of the mandible. It produces much more serous secretions. It's perhaps worth noting that it is surrounded by a fairly thick layer of investing fascia. This means that it is not particularly distensible, and when there is inflammation within the parotid gland, it can produce very considerable pain. Behind it is the sternocleidomastoid and the mastoid process. Above it is the external acoustic meatus and the temporomandibular joint. Anterior to it is the angle of the mandible, the medial pterygoid plate, the masseter, and the stylomandibular ligament. Within the gland itself are the branches of the facial nerve, the retromandibular vein, the external carotid artery, and lymph nodes. The auriculotemporal nerve passes very nearby it and drops off the parasympathetic fibres that it is picked up from the otic ganglion. Medially, or deep to the gland, there is the mastoid process, the sternomastoid, the posterior belly of the digastric, the styloid process, the stylohyoid ligament, and the muscle, and the styloglossus, stylopharyngeus, and the temporomandibular joint. Its duct passes over the lateral surface of masseter and then pierces buccinator to enter the mouth at the level of the second upper molar tooth. A description of the teeth is probably beyond the scope of this podcast. But just simply to say that there is a set of deciduous teeth, numbering 20, and these appear between the ages of 6 months and 24 months, whereas the adult permanent teeth is a set of 32 teeth that appear between the 6th year and the 24th year. They sit in special alveolar bone allows a certain amount of movement. A point worth knowing is that most of the lower teeth can be anaesthetized by simply blocking the inferior alveolar nerve, whereas in the upper teeth, more localized local anaesthetic is needed above each tooth, as the, the teeth themselves are supplied by the superior alveolar nerves. Now let's turn to the tongue. It's classically and usefully divided into an anterior two-thirds and a one-third posterior. This has important implications from both a developmental point of view and a functional point of view. When we consider the pharyngeal arches, we see that the anterior two-thirds has largely arisen from the first arch. 
The nerve representation from this first arch is the mandibular division of the trigeminal in the form of the lingual nerve. The posterior one-third arises from the third arch, and this in turn is represented by its nerve supply of the glossopharyngeal. Indeed, the only evidence that the second arch has taken part in the development is the appearance of the corda tympani, a branch of the seventh nerve. The corda tympani carries the taste from the anterior two-thirds, but we've seen already that it also brings in the parasympathetic for the secretomotor fibres for the submandibular and sublingual salivary glands. The specific movements of the tongue are controlled by a number of extrinsic muscles. But first of all, one needs to know that there are also intrinsic muscles. These intrinsic muscles are not attached to the bone and they're divided up into longitudinal, transverse and vertical fibres. They're able to change the shape of the tongue and, for instance, protrude it out of the mouth. They're all supplied by the hypoglossal nerve. Then there is hyoglossus, which comes up from the hyoid bone into the sides of the tongue. This muscle will pull the tongue downwards. There is genioglossus coming from the little genial tubercles on the inside of the front of the mandible. This is generally regarded as the bulk of the muscle, but I don't really believe this is true. I think that these are two fairly thin plates of muscle within the centre of the tongue, and the bulk of the tongue itself are the intrinsic muscles. Genioglossus is supplied by the hypoglossal nerve. Then there is styloglossus from the styloid process coming forwards into the posterior aspect of the tongue and interdigitating with the other muscles. This muscle will pull the tongue backwards and help with the transmission of the bolus of food from the front to the back of the mouth. And lastly is the odd man out. This is the palatoglossus which comes from the posterior edge of the hard palate and runs down into the posterior lateral surfaces of the tongue. This should be regarded as a palate muscle as opposed to a tongue muscle because it's supplied by the pharyngeal plexus which we define as 9, 10 and sympathetic. Indeed one might ask is it the 9, the 10 or the sympathetic that supplies the muscle? Well, it certainly isn't the sympathetic, because these are striated muscles. It certainly isn't the glossopharyngeal, because that only supplies one muscle, the stylopharyngeus, and therefore it must be 10. But, of course, 10 is normally regarded as a pure parasympathetic nerve, but it does, of course, carry the motor fibres from the cranial root of the accessory. So we can regard the tongue as a mass of skeletal muscle covered by mucous membrane. It's divided functionally and, of course, embryologically into an anterior two-thirds and a posterior one-third. And this division is by the sulcus terminalis. This is a V, and the open part of the V points anteriorly. Just anteriorly to the sulcus terminalis, and lying officially in the anterior two-thirds of the tongue are the large circumvallate papillae. These tiny little round lumps of tissue have like a moat around them, and within that moat there are taste cells. Again, although they lie in the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, they are supplied by branches of the glossopharyngeal nerve. 
The rest of the posterior third of the tongue is quite smooth. The thin mucosa has the lingual tonsil lying beneath it. There are few, if any, actual taste buds on the surface of the posterior third, but there are, of course, taste buds along the edges of the posterior third and up the palatoglossal and palatopharyngeal arches. These, again, are supplied by the glossopharyngeal nerve. General sensation on the posterior third of the tongue is also supplied by the glossopharyngeal nerve. So, in summary, on the posterior third of the tongue, it is smooth, this is ideal for swallowing, there are no papillae, there is the lingual tonsil, and it lies within the oropharynx. The anterior two-thirds, meanwhile, is in the mouth itself. There are papillae of both the phyliform and the fungiform type. The phyliform are for grip, and the fungiform are for taste. The tongue otherwise consists of a stratified, keratinizing squamous epithelium. It's worth noting that the filiform papillae are made up of little bits of keratin. In health, when the mouth has been used for eating, these little tips of keratin are swept off and the tongue will look healthy and red. But when the tongue has not been used for eating, they will become elongated and become white and finally, if they dry out, they'll even become brown. So it's not surprising that someone who's not eaten for a while and is really quite ill will end up with what only amounts to a brown, hairy tongue. The tongue is supplied by the lingual artery. This is a branch of the external carotid that passes deep to higher glossus to reach the tongue. As far as lymph drainage is concerned, the tip drains to the submental glands on both sides, whereas the dorsum goes unilaterally to the submandibular glands. In the posterior part of the tongue, drainage is down to the jugulo-omohyoid and deep cervical groups. We've mentioned the oropharynx earlier in this podcast, so just now let's look carefully at the definition of it. It extends anteriorly as far as the palatoglossus arch, which is a ridge produced by the palatoglossus muscle. And it extends posteriorly to the three constrictors that make up the posterior wall at this level. It is limited superiorly by the tip of the soft palate, the uvula, and it is limited inferiorly by the tip of the epiglottis. But we must include the area that lies between the posterior third of the tongue and the epiglottis, which is the vallecula. Between the palatoglossal arch and the posteriorly placed palatopharyngeal arch is the tonsillar fossa. Here lie the palatine tonsil on each side. Deep to the tonsil lies the glossopharyngeal nerve, which is the nerve supply for the whole of the oropharynx, both for general sensation and for taste. At this point, let us note that on removal of the tonsils, one can get referred pain from the glossopharyngeal nerve to the middle ear, because the middle ear itself is also supplied by the glossopharyngeal nerve. Laterally, deep to the tonsillar fossa, is the internal carotid artery. 
The Palatine tonsil is clearly important because it is a fairly common operation to have one's tonsils and adenoid removed. It has mucosa over the tonsil and there's some 20 tonsillar crypts. Deep to it, apart from the structures that we've already mentioned, are the superior constrictor and the facial artery with its branches. It is in fact supplied by the tonsillar branch of the facial artery. It has a plexus of veins in its capsule and these drain down to the pharyngeal plexus of veins. In part, the tonsil develops from the second pharyngeal arch. Its lymphatic drainage is to the deep cervical and jugulodigastric, which are classically tender and enlarged with tonsillitis. Let's just remember that we have a circle of lymphatic tissue around the opening of the mouth and nose. This is called Waldau's ring, and it consists superiorly of the adenoid in the nasopharynx, the lingual tonsil below midline, and then the two tubal tonsils associated with the opening of the eustachian tubes and the two palatine tonsils that we have just been talking about. Let's finish this podcast with a set of rules which you may find helpful. If we look, for instance, at the pharynx, we find that all the muscles are supplied by the pharyngeal plexus, 9, 10 and sympathetic, except stylopharyngeus, which is supplied by the glossopharyngeal nerve. Then we could look at the palate and say that, again, all the muscles are supplied by the pharyngeal plexus, except tensor palati, which is supplied by the mandibular division of the trigeminal nerve. Then we could look at the tongue and say all the muscles are supplied by the hypoglossal nerve, apart from palatoglossus, which again is supplied by the pharyngeal plexus. We could look at the facial expression and include buccinator, and find that all the muscles are supplied by the facial nerve, except levator palpebri superioris, which is supplied by the ocular motor nerve. Then we could look at the muscles of mastication, and say that they're all supplied by the mandibular division of the trigeminal, apart from buccinator, which is supplied by the facial nerve. And lastly, although we haven't previously described the larynx, we could say that all the intrinsic muscles of the larynx are supplied by the recurrent laryngeal nerve, apart from cricothyroid, which is supplied by the external branch of the superior laryngeal nerve. And with that summary, we'll finish this particular podcast on the mouth and moropharynx. Please visit our website at incidentanatomy.net where you can find the complete collection of all our podcasts. You can also subscribe, download or order any of our material. You will also find full details of our range of mobile apps.